This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax. It is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist. You're going to have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic to keep you informed, prepared, and especially calm. We are all in this together, my friends. We're going to get through this together. With that said, we at Science Rules Coronavirus Edition cannot avoid all of the agony and anxiety in the news coverage. One mask is not enough. Wear two masks. Wear three masks. A fourth wave is coming. And the big one, the vaccines may be less effective against the new COVID variants. Whoa! It seems like these days, most stories about the pandemic want you to do the opposite of stay calm. They want you to panic. Is this sort of coverage doing more harm than good? That's the question. So here to help clarify what all of us media types are getting wrong is Dr. Zainab Tufeci. She is a techno-sociologist at the University of North Carolina and a regular contributor to the New York Times and The Atlantic. Dr. Zainab Tufeci, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. May I call you Zainab? Absolutely. All right. We'll start with this. You had a story in The Atlantic last week. Five pandemic mistakes we keep repeating. What are the five pandemic mistakes we keep repeating? Absolutely happy to go through them. So uh, these are themes that I think have undermined our response. And they're not things that have happened because people were necessarily out to get us, but they're structural problems that are broader than just the pandemic. So the first one I highlight is this idea of risk compensation uh, or false sense of security. It's something that's been a problem the whole time. Some public health agencies and experts fear that if they kind of highlight something that makes us safer, that the public will then become even more reckless and undermine that safety. That You even saw this with masks early on. There were a lot of arguments made by many people that if we wore a mask, we would be even more reckless and not distance or not wash our hands. Now, this concern pops up against every safety device. People argued seatbelts made us less safe. They argued bike helmets make us less safe. It's always the same logic. You know, if you allow people to have a safety device, they'll be more reckless and that's going to undermine it. When you look at the research, it's 
it doesn't work out that way because the safety you get from the safety device is so huge and important that, you know, even if you have some recklessness at the margins to the degree you might, it's completely overwhelmed by the safety. In other words, you're saying most people wear a mask. Most people Not put on their seatbelt. Not just that. It doesn't undermine anything else because, so, you know, sort of just basic common sense, but this is also so basic sociology. Most people who want to stay safe from a pathogen with no cure and potentially fatal, if they wear a safety device like a mask, they don't then become reckless and even, you know, do other things. They they just do everything else more too. You know, they'll wash their hands more. They'll distance more. Or in, instead of undermining, these kinds of things actually sort of help each other. Now we're seeing a similar discussion around the vaccines. I have seen a lot of sort of worries that if we tell the vaccinated people that there's things that they can do that is now safer, that everybody will be reckless. But I'm like, not really. We can give people that nuance and that complexity and say, here's how it makes you safer. Here's what you can do now. And here's what the risk looks like. And just trust people to kind of assess risk rather than this idea they'll just go wild and, you know, disregard everything. Isn't the United States unique that way where we have politicized it? politicized uh, safety precautions? Well, yes and no. Uh, you see the same arguments actually play uh, in other parts of the world. And I think this is a problem with authorities, to be honest, around the world. And you have a lot of studies like that around the world where when there's a disaster or a catastrophe or something, uh, the authorities are really mistrustful of the public and sometimes expect the worst of them. And the public rarely behaves that way. You know, people want to be safe and they want to take precautions. Now, of course, in the United States, we got the further complication that we had an administration that was undermining the public health authorities and there was a lot of confusion, but they're not really unique to just us. For example, the second one I give as an example of something I think we haven't done enough is to give people better understanding of things like the transmission mechanisms and better intuition about them rather than giving them like these binary rules like six feet, 15 minutes, which don't really work and don't really give you the proper transmission intuition, like what's actually happening. Zainab, wasn't there a problem that uh, it wasn't understood? When this thing started, we had people on this show saying you got to uh, wipe everything down, all your groceries with uh, hydrogen peroxide because some tests had been done that showed the virus could survive on stainless steel for 45 minutes or something. In other words, it wasn't part of the problem. It wasn't understood at first. I think like February, there was a lot of confusion. Like there was, I, I agree. Like I did the same things myself. There was a lot of confusion. But even that article, the scientific article you're referring to that showed that there was potential for these things to survive in fomites, they had generated the aerosols and there was a very rapid decay time. So it was a theoretical thing saying this is something to watch out for, which I agreed with at the time. But by like April, we had enormous amount of epidemiology that already showed that this was 
spreading almost exclusively indoors and poorly ventilated spaces for the super spreading. We had data that showed that this was overdispersed, which means most people didn't transmit, but occasionally you had these big bursts. And all those big super spreading bursts were occurring indoors. So by April of last year, like at the end of March, I felt publicly confident enough to say, forget closing parks. We need to open them the beaches and the parks and sort of send people to them because I wasn't like ahead of the evidence. The evidence was there already. We just were kind of in this sort of overly cautious mode, which I think is justified the first month. But when the data comes and you have to temper what the data is telling you. And so how much of it is the media's fault? I am going to say that it is the fault of our public health and our scientific kind of infrastructure, because I know the CDC was hampered. But what we probably in hindsight should have done was like all the universities, I'm an academic myself, we should have formed a consortium, some authoritative way to get these things out to the people because oh, wow. pre-symptomatic transmission. So you wanted, I mean, if I understand you, what you're saying, you wanted to go around the Centers for Disease Control. Not right now, but back then, yes. Yeah. So that was a big, it just shows you People at the top make a big difference. Go ahead, go ahead. It does. Because see, the thing is, I wrote an op-ed calling for mask wearing in um, mid-March of uh, 2020. And it was the first big op-ed. It's since been reported. It kind of lit the fire under the CDC and helped tip this, which I'm happy to say that's what happened. But like, never in a million years would have I thought that I would start writing about a pandemic by contradicting the World Health Organization and the CDC, right? The fact that, like, I believe in science and I believe in those institutions. Like, I, we understand it was a messy year and it was a complicated year and a lot of things went wrong. But what we should take from this is never again should we find ourselves in that position because, as you point out, the media, individual people, we can't just be sort of waiting through which expert to follow on Twitter or who to believe. Okay, what about the second mistake? Rules in place of mechanisms and intuition. Yes, yeah, so what we had is we didn't give people intuition. We said six feet. Well, I mean, that doesn't really make sense. What happens at seven feet? What happens at five feet? Like, why six feet? Why 15 minutes? Well, it was minutes? two meters in Europe for crying yes. out loud. That's a six-inch difference, everybody. Well, actually, oh, the World goodness. Health Organization was saying one meter, which is three feet. But what I think we needed to say is that and this is how I would have phrased it. I would have said that this um, pathogen is primarily spread through inhaling these little floaty particles. And the closer you are to a person, the more likely you are to inhale what they're breathing out. So do stay away from people. And people produce more of them if they sing or yell or shout. And in a poorly ventilated indoor environment, these things can float around and accumulate even beyond six feet. This is kind of just explain the transmission mechanism. So if you see something, like if you see a crowded grocery store, you can go, ah, it's a little crowded. I'm not going to go now. Or if you see a park or a beach, you're like, this is fine because outdoors it dilutes. But people were defiant. I mean, you mentioned singing. People went to church anyway. 
Well, because I think that's our fault. We didn't explain to people that. Who's who's our? Who's us in this case? Us in this case is, I think, the public health authorities and to some degree media. I will put myself in this too. I tried, but like we're all in it together because if it's open, right, if we're allowing it and if there's no particular guidance, what is an ordinary person supposed to do? Exactly. What pub, is an ordinary know, yeah, person what, supposed to do? Are they supposed to like read lots of papers and try to figure this out? So I don't blame people for taking part in what is otherwise allowed. But if we had guidance saying, you know, worship may be an important part of your life, but let's try to do it outdoors. Or if you're indoors, singing is um, not the safest thing. Put your hand over your heart and just sort of think about it or something that people could come up with. This is all about last year so far. What are we doing now? What are we going to be doing? And the big question along that line, what are we going to be doing about the variants? So, oh, I'm so glad you asked about this because I think that's another thing that the public is being really confused in an unnecessary way. So what you're seeing is uh, we measured the efficacy of these vaccines by uh, something we call the vaccine efficacy, which we the endpoint for the trials is if there's any symptomatic disease, meaning did you get a fever, did you get a headache, did you get you know fatigue from it? The reason we measure that is it's the easiest thing to measure with enough statistical power because you know that kind of mild disease is very common. So if you do a trial with thirty thousand people, you'll get enough mild disease to say. Hmm, what is this vaccine doing compared to the placebo arm? So that's how we measure vaccine efficacy. But what do we really care about? We care about severe disease. So what you measure is hospitalization and death. Now there, uh, the immune system works in stages. Uh, So if you think of the immune system, this is the not right way to think about it. Uh, If you think of it as a wall, and like if a wave washes over it, then the wall is too short. Like if you think of it that way, and it's not that, it makes sense to worry about whether or not it gives you fever or not. But the immune system has like an initial response where we get these antibodies. And it has a longer term response with T cells, which is what is preventing severe disease and uh, the deaths. What happens with the variants is that because they're a little different, Sometimes it's easier for the fever and the cough or whatever else to happen, but that doesn't really stop the rest of the immune system, the T cells, from coming in later and preventing uh, the severe severe disease and hospitalization death. And when you look at it that way, the variants have a little bit of sort of... um, play with like whether or not you get breakthrough disease. But if you look at what we care about, hospitalization, severe disease, they're almost 100% for deaths and hospitalizations. So I'm kind of like, why are ordinary people worrying about it? Yes, we may need to tweak it a little bit and get a booster next year. But right now, all the vaccines, every one of them in every trial, six trials, you know, not just the ones that have been authorized in this country, have shown themselves to be 100% effective against death, against hospitalization, including the ones that were tested against the new variants after they came out. So to me, that's kind of like, you know what? The immune system is 
working and the T cells are coming in and it's working and preventing the things that we care about, why are we fretting over whether there's a little bit of increase in the people who may or may not get fever, which is something for the scientists to study to see if we need another booster, but not for us to fret over. So what about this controversy right now? This one is 90% effective. This one's only, only 80% effective. I want the 90% effective. What about that controversy? I think it's very misleading. So here's the thing. If you look at it apples to apples, uh, the Johnson & Johnson that's just been released, it does have slightly lower efficacy measured for the breakthrough mild disease, you know, the fevers and stuff. But it was tested at a time of higher community transmission and against the variants. So the ones that we think are better are like the higher efficacy ones. They were tested in a lower community transmission and, and not against the variants. Style. Yeah, yeah so for all we, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, like if there was one that I thought was slightly less powerful in preventing severe disease, I would say, I would honestly say, all right, let's prioritize elderly or something like that. But to the best of my ability, I don't think there's a meaningful difference because of the different time periods. So you hit the nail on the head that Johnson & Johnson is being tested against the original and the variants. Correct. The other ones were tested against one So if anything, Johnson & Johnson has some evidence it's, I'm not saying it is, but it's completely plausible that if you did get an apples to apples comparison, it could be better. There's no reason to think it's a it's moving not. target. Yeah, it's, it's a, a moving, moving target, target and it hit the target as it is now. So I'm kind of like, I feel more assured because it prevented severe disease and death in the latest version, which should be more comforting. Instead, people are fretting over a false comparison. We'll be back right after this. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling And the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.
so far we've covered you got five things, five mistakes we make. Right. Risk compensation, concern that people would have a false sense of security after they take safety measures, rules in place and intuition. But what about this third one? Scolding and shaming. Scolding and shaming is the way we have focused on individual behaviors uh, and did not really um, look at the structural stuff. So you saw tons of people, for example, getting mad at people who were being at a beach or a park or things like that when, one, it was safe. Uh, I think oh, outdoors is safe, so that was wrong. The second thing is that by scolding and shaming safer activities that happened in front of us, like things we could see, we draw people, if anything, to underground because if you know they're socializing outdoors, it's much safer than them doing this out of our sight indoors. And it also uh, overlooks my other thing, which is uh, harm reduction. So when there's a crucial human need, like socializing, you do not tell people you're not going to do any of this for a year because they're going to do it. What you tell them is, this is how to do it safer, right? You tell them, you know, socialize outdoors, sit in a breezy place, sit apart, wear your mask. We tend to do that too. Like as humans, it seems like, oh, if I, you know, sort of tell them not to do that, we lecture our kids, right? We say, don't do it, don't do it. Then they do it behind our back if it's something they really want to do, like talk to their friends. You have to figure out how to advise people to do essential things, crucial things, big needs. And socializing is one of them in the safest possible way. You don't just sort of... What would good media coverage be like? What would have done is you would have proportional coverage to good news and bad news. I mean, when the polio vaccine got announced, the country was jubilant you know factory bells and whistles went off and church bells rang and people i was alive for that i'm so old i was alive for that people yeah i mean so it was a celebration and we did not get that and it was like we didn't get the celebration and the amazing uh news the way we should have received it but when uh there was a single adverse event when a woman in Alaska, she had an, an she had like an allergic reaction to a vaccine, yeah. but she was mm-hmm. fine. Like she got her, she was already an, a person with allergies and it sometimes happens and she got an EpiPen, she was fine. There was a New York Times push alert to millions of people. Like we do not need to know every adverse reaction that's quickly and competently handled. Who's going to be in charge of that? We should, we should, we should like- Who's we? The editors at newspapers, us at what we subscribe to, when we write letters to the editors, what we read. I think like we, I realize it's messy, but what should happen is like, I'm not saying don't report the bad news. I Not at all. I'm just saying it should be in proportion to what the bad news is. So what do we do? You know, we were on a podcast that is a so-called self-selected audience. What do we do about news that promotes all the bad, catastrophic things. So I think there's two things here. One of them is the short term, where we need like the public health authorities to provide the guidance so the confusion ends. And I'm hoping like with the new administration that this will more speedily... Straighten out a little bit. Yes, so that's a very good step. But the second thing I think is a long-term thing is that, you know, I used to teach pandemic because, you know, sociology of pandemics is very interesting. And I would talk to my students about 1918, the Spanish flu, and I would say, how many of you know anything about it? And 
Like I used to teach intro to sociology and usually it would be like one out of 150. It's a lecture hall, maybe one out of 200 that had even heard about it, let alone know anything about it because it was completely erased from memory. You know the saying, people who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat it. So yeah, I've, I, I tell people, go to an old cemetery and just look at all the tombstones of people who were 10 years old in 1918 killed by the flu. It's amazing. We need to learn, and I don't mean to have necessarily a learning process where we're just looking for scapegoats. Although there are people who misinformed the public, uh, including our past president, that I do think were culpable. But there were a lot of other things that went wrong, too, at a global level, including ourselves. And I want something like, a, you know, when there's a plane crash, the NTSB, the Transportation Safety Board, does a no-blame postmortem in which they try to understand what went wrong, not to find and fire that pilot necessarily, but to try to make sure it never happens again. So what I think we need to do is like I really once the swines down a national reckoning that's not really focused on who are we going to necessarily fire because that's not how you solve things. How do you fix it? So the next time comes around that everybody does their job and there aren't people that we're looking to fire afterwards. And that's we're going to be tempted to just not do that and just maybe blame Trump and get over it. And I think that will be a pity because. The pandemic has shown us, it's like a stress test. It's shown us a lot of cracks in how our institutions work, how the media works, how we work as people, and what goes wrong. We should learn from it. What happens if long about, I'm not joking, long about July of this year, of 2021, we have reached herd immunity so that by the summer we have vaccinated 250 million people out of 318 and we're pretty close to herd immunity. What is the danger of everybody just kind of forgetting about it because of that? Because of the so many remarkable because, science safety. Yeah. Now, I hate to say this because this was a tragic loss. It was a starter pandemic. The pathogen, as terrible it was, was absolutely not the worst in the sort of range of as these pathogens go. It was turns out quite easy to vaccinate against, which didn't have to happen. Like this was, this is amazing, but not everything is this easy to uh, vaccinate against. It wasn't an HIV. It was like, there were many, many things that made it easier for us to get a handle on it. And I'm not saying this to make light of what happened because every death is tragic and every illness and all the severe things people went through is absolutely tragic, but we could have been hit with something much worse. And if we don't learn from it, it could happen, and then we could be caught just as unprepared, and that would be a pity. Our producer, Harry, wants to know when he can have a wedding with 150 guests, people from all over. Outdoors? He wants to have it indoors. I wouldn't put a time on the indoors, because anything indoors is going to depend on community transmission. Depends on the vaccination, and like we have vaccine-hesitant populations. There's a lot of things uh, I would say 2022, it will happen. I do not know 2021 if we'll feel confident enough to do that, even though it will get safer and safer. Can you quickly cover the last of your five, yes. which is, I guess, is maybe the this really is the whole question when it comes to the wedding, when it comes to everybody's personal behavior, when it comes to the 
the immediate and medium-term future. Yes. What is the balance between knowledge and action? So the idea there is that uh, we have to act with uncertainty. And we also have to be honest with what we know and what we don't know to the public. So you're 150 people indoors if they're all vaccinated. I would feel comfortable with that personally. Does that mean that I think it's advisable to allow that right now? No, it is not because there's community transmission and there's sort of we don't want to really let our guard down. But once we vaccinate enough of the community, uh, enough of the world, we're going to be able to, I think, say things like, you know, two vaccinated people who want to have an indoor dinner, a family that wants to have an indoor dinner. I think those things should be allowed pretty quickly. And as the... um you know, vaccination coverage increases, we're going to feel more and more comfortable with larger groups and all the other things. But let's say something important to your herd immunity does not mean you don't get local outbreaks. So even before herd immunity, as a vaccinated person, you're much safer than an unvaccinated person, regardless of herd immunity. But also even after herd immunity, if you live in a community of unvaccinated people, you can totally have an outbreak there and not be protected by herd immunity. You get measles and other things. So instead of focusing on herd immunity as if it's like a binary thing, I think we should exactly explain to people what it is and what is not and give people guided, tiered advice. If you're vaccinated... That's us. Yes. Guided, tiered advice. Absolutely. So what is your... You're My queen God. of the forest now. You're okay, in charge. So I'm in charge and I will immediately let advise people that vaccinated people can feel safe doing a lot more things uh, indoors. But our public behavior should not change for now because we're still getting precision on transmission. And also you can't really have two classes of rules like in a grocery store, you know, vaccinated can do this and not vaccinated. So our public behavior, I think, for the moment remains unchanged till we get better coverage. But I think currently, privately, if you're vaccinated and the other person is vaccinated, there's a lot more you can do that's safe. And as a vaccinated person, even your public behavior, even though you should still wear that mask and do all the rest of it, you're safer. There's no question about it that things that used to be riskier are now less risky. So if you want to get that haircut, I feel like, yeah, like Go two weeks it. after your second booster shot, I would feel a lot more comfortable and not worry about it. It's just that I don't want a grocery store to try to police, you know, are you vaccinated, have vaccine cards. I think that's Plus wrong. Plus people would lie about it. I yeah, mean, so that's goodness. wrong. So, and again, there's transmission. So publicly, yeah, we're going to keep this up till there's better coverage. It's the measured response. That's what we're talking about. Thank you so much, Zainab. Thank you. Our guest today has been Dr. Zainab Tufechi, a techno-sociologist at the University of North Carolina, contributor to the New York Times and The Atlantic. You can sign up for her newsletter at technosociology.org. For all you techno-sociology buffs out there, and I hope you've all become such, uh, thank you so much. I'm Bill Nye, and my friends, this is a pandemic. It's infection around the world. We are all in this together. And more than ever, everyone, science rules. If you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us find out what you want to hear about. Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer today is Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. 
Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. And remember, at Stitcher and around the world, science rules. Stitcher. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.